music this morning. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. And as we continue through our series of Colossians this morning, I want to kind of pause our uh, progress a little bit, not, not necessarily uh, walking through a new passage of Scripture, uh, but following up on what we've preached over the last several weeks and tying these things together and hopefully getting some clarity on what it means to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Him? And we can talk about we are in Christ, we are settled in Christ, we are made new in Christ, but how does that apply? And I've got all of this set up here of an illustration. It is not a science project. I hope to use an illustration. And we'll come back and visit this toward the end of the message here. But I want to talk to you about those things this morning. What does it mean to be in Him? As we read our text this morning, I want you to notice how many times the phrase in Him is mentioned in the text. And so as we read it aloud together, or as I read it aloud and you follow along, um, let's, let's walk through that together and say, what does it mean to be in him? And Brother Mike, as I'm hearing this, it sounds louder than it did first service to me on my side, not on your side, okay? All right. Very good. Is it sound okay out there? The sound is good out there? All right. Appreciate you uh, uh, giving me that feedback. I appreciate it very much. Just want to make sure that it's not aggravating your ears as you're listening to it any more than my voice normally does. So um, <clears throat> so if you laughed at that, I'm offended. So, <laughs> If you're there in Colossians chapter 2, verse number uh, 6, we're going to read 6 through 15. And so follow along with me if you would. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in trespasses and in uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And again, we see the phrase, in him, in him, in him. And it is in Christ that we have our hope. And so let's pray together this morning, and I'll ask you to put your minds on that with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open the word of God together, or thank you for the songs we sung, thank you for... Uh, the words that we've heard this morning, the challenge we've heard, uh, the need to get the gospel around the world. And Father, I pray this morning that, Lord, as we focus in this morning on this truth and this text of Scripture, that, Father, you would just settle it down in our hearts. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would remove the distractions of the week ahead from our minds. Lord, I pray, Father, that um, we would not be distracted, but our hearts would be focused in. We would receive the message that you have for us today. 
In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So for several weeks now, we've talked about plausible arguments that pull us away from Christ, or they give us a, uh, a, a Christ and approach. So you have Jesus plus something else, or you have this thing is going to lead you to fullness, or this idea will bring you to complete understanding. And these misunderstandings here, uh, the Bible tells us that they are empty deceit, they are empty arguments, they're going to leave us in a, in a bad way. Have you ever heard somebody say to you, well, you can say what you will, but, anybody ever use that phrase? We use that down south a lot. You can say what you will, but, generally when somebody says that, what's going to follow that statement may or may not be true. It may, not be, it may or may not be in agreement with reality, but it is resting largely on someone's experience or feeling. Well, you can say what you will, but I think the Atlanta Braves are the best team in baseball. Well, it doesn't have to be any fact. That's just my opinion. And, and, and the problem is, is when we rest truth on that kind of statement, it puts truth in a bad position. Because you can say what you will, I think Jesus is the best Savior. Well, he is the best Savior. He's the only Savior. But that's not how we root that. We don't root it on somebody's opinion or how I feel about it. Um, uh, we can say, well, you can say what you will, but I believe the Bible's the word of God. How many of you believe the Bible's the word of God? Amen. How many of you can say amen to that? And we rest in the fact the Bible's the word of God. But it's not a situation where you say what you think, you say what you will, but the Bible's the word of God. But really, the Bible is the word of God, and here's why, and it doesn't matter what anyone says because of the truth that backs it up. Not my experience, not my emotion, not how I'm attached with it. You know what we say, we pastor, you can say what you will, but I think hymns are better. Well, okay, but that's your opinion. That's not rooted in anything that is solid. You can say what you will, but I think churches ought to have steeples and churches ought to have organs. You can say what you will. And again, we're making an emotional plea for something. We're maybe even making a preferential plea for something, but we're not making a biblical or a truth-centered appeal for something. I, I had a, a church, uh, if you didn't know this or not, sometimes pastors get letters and the letters are usually detailed, and they'll have like point one, point two, point three, and it generally has something to do with why I don't like you. And here are the seven points. Um, and <clears throat> if you ever need help writing a letter like that, call my wife. She has plenty of stuff to fill in the blanks for you. But um, the, the reality is, I, I got a letter one time, and we had had an organ in our church in Ohio, and uh, the organ had not worked properly since we moved there. It had never worked, and we wrestled with getting that organ going, and a couple of times he got it up at Oregon, and about halfway through the service, it would, you know, blow a fuse, and, um, and it had all the, it was an old organ. It had the, the filaments and the bulbs and stuff in it, and uh, we never got the thing working, but it sat there for years collecting dust. We had a work day, and I'm like, you know what, let's just get rid of that thing, and a couple of the guys were like, yeah, let's get rid of it. We got rid of it. I got a letter. I think churches ought to have organs. I'm like, nobody here can play it. We've never used it, and yet you're emotionally connected to the fact the church no longer has an organ. And we can make these statements, but our, our, our positions cannot be resting this morning, church, on how we feel about something or what our experience is, but it must rest upon what the Scripture says and what is in agreement with reality and truth. And this is where we stand. So I say, you can say what you will this morning, but Coke is better than Pepsi. 
Now that is truth, all right? I'm just going to say that that's truth. We went to the men's get-together last night, and uh, my son ordered something to drink, and, and I, I failed to order anything to drink, but we both had our food come out at the same time, and I'm like, hey, can I have some of your drink? And I grabbed it. By the time I grabbed it, he goes, it's Pepsi, and, you know, and I took a sip of it, and I knew it was Pepsi because it tasted like dirty dishwater, you know? Um, it was just horrible. And, uh, but anyhow, we, we, we make jokes about that. But, you know, obviously, we're not making a truth claim when you claim something like that. And that's why we can't settle what we believe about God and what we believe about the Word of God on our emotions or our subjective reasoning. It must be objective truth that roots us to it. Pastor Caleb ended last week with a statement. He said, we are filled in him, not by him. Now, that thought right there is what I want you to rest on, and I want you to think on that with me this morning. So what are these plausible arguments that come in that would have us say, well, you can say what you will, but what are these arguments? And I've got these uh, outlined over here for us on the table, and I'm just going to walk through them very quickly. You have asceticism. Asceticism is the idea of self-denial. Legalism is married to asceticism, I think, in a large way. Legalism would be the religious response to asceticism. Whereas asceticism would be more of a secular response. And the idea is that I can deny myself enough to reach a level of enlightenment. That if I fast long enough or if I go up on a mountain and I isolate myself, I'll reach a place of enlightenment and I'll, I'll have an aha moment. You might have another one, another one that, that these warning is against and you can search this text to see if they are there. But philosophy, another one is philosophy, man's wisdom. Wisdom comes along and offers us some order or some insight into life, and we think we're going to find fullness in wisdom. Another of the plausible arguments uh, circles around the idea of mysticism. How many of you understand that there is more to this world than meets the eye? How many of you understand that there are angels and that there are demons and there is more than you you are greater than the sum of your parts? I mean, explain to me why you would love a dog. I got one better. Explain to me why you would love a cat. Why would anybody love a cat, right? Some, somebody said, you know, a dog, you feed a dog, you, you, you water it, you give it water, you give him a place to live. And he goes, huh, he feeds me, he gives me water, he loves on me, huh, he must be God. But a cat, you feed a cat, you pet a cat. You give a cat a place to live, and he goes, huh, he feeds me, gives me a place to sleep, and loves me. I must be God. Um, That's exactly how cats think, too, by the way. Um, The reality is we we can't understand the sum of the part, that there is a reason why we love something and, and why we go beyond ourselves, and it's greater. When we gather in worship on a Sunday morning and our voices are lifted in praise, there's something more than just the sum of the parts and the notes together. And we understand there is a mystery to all of that. But the answer is not just in the mysteries of this world. The answer is not in trying to figure out what makes the Bermuda Triangle the Bermuda Triangle. It's not trying to be ghost hunters and and all of these things. And men, they run after these things to try to find their fulfillment. We're looking at cards and we're looking at the stars trying to say, well, this is what your future is going to be. And there's no answer in those things. But it runs to mysticism. Uh, Not only mysticism and, and asceticism and philosophy, but finally indulgence. Indulgence is the idea of just pouring ourselves into whatever makes us feel good. 
Uh, if it feels good, do it. If we desire it, we ought to give ourselves to it. And we run to these things that we think will fill us. We think philosophy will fill us. We think mysticism will fill us. That asceticism is the answer or indulgence is the answer. And we think somehow or another if we can do enough of these things, we'll be complete. And none of these things can fill us up or make us complete. I want you to see why they fail to make us complete. I want you to see the word elemental spirit. Look at verse number 8 of our text this morning as we read it. He says this, See too that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What are these elemental spirits that he's talking about? Well, jump, if you would, to chapter number 2, and let's go down to verse number 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, so he's referring to them again, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What are those regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And what are these referring to? Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Elemental spirits are the things of this temporal world that will pass away. It's the idea of the things that are here and now are perishing. When it comes to philosophy, the problem with philosophy is not that it tries, that it, fail, that it just can't answer the problems of the world. The problem with philosophy is that it's limited by the here and now. That all that men can see, all the wisdom of the world that we have at our fingertips is only what men can perceive by the present day and the present time. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, that man in history was a product of his time? What do we mean by that? We mean he had some major blinders on, right? Some things he should have seen, but he didn't see because he was living in a certain era of time and he was blinded by the preconceived ideas that his era of time held to. Now, it doesn't make his falsehood any less a falsehood, but it shows us that we are limited. You and I are limited in our wisdom because we live in this present world. We don't have wisdom that goes beyond eternity. We have wisdom that is, lived, uh, that is uh, basically inferred by what we can gather from other men who have lived in the present world and our time and experience. And then, then we might go to the idea of mysticism. And so we can look around and say, you know, and I've had many people come to me, well, Pastor, I don't care what you say, but I know my aunt came and visited me and I saw her in a rocking chair and she told me everything's gonna be okay. And we have these experiences and people lean heavy into this and they find, you're finding your completeness in that. That's a dangerous thing. We see mysticism is not going to be the answer. And so mysticism comes along and, it, and it's limited. What is it limited by? Our perception. It's limited by this world we are in right now. And we go over here to, uh, here we have asceticism. Asceticism is, it, would we say that discipline is bad? No. Would we say that we should never deny ourselves anything? Well, obviously we have to deny ourselves. Obviously we have to get to a place where we say, no, that's not healthy. But the point is, is that man doesn't know what to say no to and what to say yes to because we're limited by this world. And then when it comes to pleasure. Here's the thing about pleasure, and I think the church misses this, is we get the idea that pleasure is bad. Pleasure's not bad. The devil didn't make pleasure, God did. God made the pleasures. That hamburger you eat for lunch today, God made it taste good. It's the devil that gets you to add bacon to it. No, I'm teasing. Uh, but 
It, it's, it, the reality is God made it taste good, and he wants us to richly enjoy it, right? He wants us to be able to take in the pleasure of this world and enjoy them. It is when we limit what pleasure is, and it becomes about us and focused on us, that we miss the point of it. And so many of these are limited. They are limited by the present, the now and now. It'd be great if we had someone who lived outside of time and eternity, that wasn't trapped in the present now and now, that could give us some wisdom and some understanding about what self-denial looks like and maybe some understanding about how to use pleasure and how to use all of these things together. And if there was just somebody outside of time and space that could speak to that, and then maybe if you would write it in a book. That'd be great, wouldn't it? And see, and that's where we miss it. That we don't, this is why we lean into these. These arguments are in conflict often. Philosophy argues with asceticism, and asceticism argues with uh, indulgence, and indulgence goes back and argues with mysticism, and when they go back and forth, and they can't seem to get the argument straight, because you're wrestling with one, and I need a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and a little more of that, and I'll find completeness if I can just find the right mix of all these things. And we're wrestling with where to go. But here's the reality. Asceticism is not going to bring you enlightenment. Indulgence is not going to bring you fulfillment. Mysticism will not bring you to a place of completeness. And philosophy will never give you complete understanding because it's limited by man's thinking. None of those things can take us to the place we're going. Why? Because they're not according to Christ. You see, we don't run to philosophy or wisdom to get our answers. We run to Christ to get our wisdom. We don't run to asceticism to find our answers, but we run to Christ to know what self-denial looks like. And when I go to Christ, he tells me what philosophy I need. He tells me what self-denial looks like. He tells me what pleasures to enjoy. And he lays those out for me, and he gives me the boundaries for my good, and he tells me there's something greater than the sum of the parts of what I see around me. That there is an angel army doing war even right now as this service goes forward. That God has a purpose that is bigger than the present. You see, using these means without Christ is futile and empty. That when we run to wisdom without Christ, we leave ourselves empty. When we run to pleasure without Christ, we leave ourselves empty. I'll give you one illustration of how it fails. And this is a kind of a universal illustration. You can apply it in a lot of places. But marriage. Marriage is often an area that we understand and we can apply these things to. So someone's struggling in our marriage. And if you've been married for any length of time, you've struggled in your marriage. Amen? Wives, you can say amen. Husbands, don't say anything, all right? Just keep it quiet. Uh, but the reality is we've all had struggles inside the marriage. That there is a battle to do it right and to want to be at harmony with one another. And so in this struggling, we might come and say, you know what the problem is? You need more wisdom for your marriage. And so I'm going to give you seven ways to make your marriage better. Here's seven principles to help your marriage go better. Well, there's nothing wrong with seven rules to help a better marriage. You know, husbands like pick up your socks, don't leave your shoes in front of the doors, load the dishwasher with the forks pointing down, you know, things like that. Those are principles, and you, you, that, but that's not, that's not Christ. Those are wisdom, yes, but they're limited. And surely you could come to uh, a marriage counselor, and they could give you some principles about, you know, hey, look, speak nicer to one another. Don't be a jerk. You know, 
We could say those things, but what would happen if you took that wisdom, you would then have to buy some asceticism and say, okay, let's double down and make this work. Just self-discipline is going to get me through. I'm going to grin and bear it. You know, how many of you have read the book or seen the book, uh, His Needs, Her Needs? It was a popular Christian book. Nobody here, only a couple of you, all right? Um, how many of you, the, the Five Love Languages? Anybody ever heard that book, all right? Nothing necessarily wrong with understanding those things. Because I think there is some wisdom in that. That we can see that we speak to one another in a certain way and we want to relate. The problem was that, that what ends up happening is we start saying, this is my love language and if you want to talk to me, learn it. These are my needs, so meet them. I knew you didn't love me, that's why you're not meeting my needs. But the gospel doesn't start there. The gospel doesn't start with what I want. The gospel takes me to a place where I am to be crucified with Christ and I lay down my life and I say when I come to this marriage, I'm not coming to be served, but to serve. And I come to lay down what I want. And the problem with man's wisdom is that we're limited it. It's limited. It doesn't have the perspective of Christ. And so we come to our marriage with wisdom and we come short. We come to our marriage with just buckle down and deal with it. You know, you've been married 20 years, just hang on. It's only another 30. You know, just grin and bear it. You'll make it, all right? That's what your grandparents did. Be like them. Now, that's, that's, that seems so futile, does it not? Because, I mean, you're like, holy cow, another 30 years of this? How is that going to work? And we get frustrated and overwhelmed. And what has happened when somebody commits themselves to asceticism? They generally run to indulgence. And they bail. No, this can't be it. Disney told me I'm to follow my heart. So I'm going to go follow my heart. And I'll find all of my wishes in something else. And so we run. And we want to make ourselves happy. And, and here's the funny thing. Man's wisdom sounds pretty good. Here's what man's wisdom will say. You're not going to make anybody happy until you're happy. You can't love anybody until you really love yourself. And I say, no. You're not going to love anybody until you understand that you've been loved. And that's where love starts with Christ. You're not going to make anyone happy until you understand your source of happiness is not here. My source of joy isn't rooted in this nasty world, but my source of joy comes from somewhere outside this world. And I'm glad it's outside this world because this world doesn't have enough to make us happy. Solomon proved it. Solomon said, I've tried everything and I've come up empty. We could say, well, mysticism is the, is the thing, Pastor. That's going to solve my problem. So we're just going to fall in love again. And there is something wonderful about romantic and the beauty of that. But I got news for you. If you're building it on that and you're not starting with Christ, you're missing the point. You know, and we could even look at this. And by the way, I think the church has done wrong when we talk about the idea of indulgence inside marriage. We get the wrong idea somehow or another that sex is bad. God created pleasure for our enjoyment. Inside marriage, it is to be enjoyed, not to be denied. It is to be something that is richly enjoyed, and God intended to be that way. I frustratingly say, and I've said it to you before, I feel like I spend most of my time telling single people to keep their hands off each other and married people to put your hands on each other. You're supposed to enjoy each other. 
You're supposed to be in that relationship, and, and what, a, what a wonderful relationship it is because the devil didn't make the pleasure, God did. And it's supposed to be something that redounds to his glory, and it does and should. And so we look at these things, philosophy, asceticism, mysticism, indulgence, and you could apply this to your child rearing, you could apply this any other way. Wisdom is not going to help you rear your children alone. Discipline is not going to help you rear your children alone. You want to make your children bitter, then lead with discipline. Amen. But here's the thing. If you'll start with Christ, Christ leads me to the right kind of discipline. Christ leads me to the right kind of wisdom. He leads me to the right kind of indulgence. It was a popular thing when I was a kid. Well, don't give that to your kids. You're going to spoil them. You know, that just doesn't line up with the way Jesus has treated me. He's given me everything. Everything has been poured out to me in Christ. What more could he offer? He gave me his greatest riches in his son. He wasn't afraid of spoiling me. And so I think we have a freedom to give to our children. And if we could use the term spoil them, yes, as much as principles from God's word would apply to it, we can pour into them. And it's a wonderful, wonderful joy to be able to do that. So again, start with Christ. Don't start with any of these other temporal ideas of philosophy and mysticism and coming over here to indulgence and asceticism and saying, that's the answer. These all come up short. Christ doesn't come up short. So in every area, we don't start with these. We start with Christ. We showed you in the earlier text that we are alive in Christ, that it is in him we have it. In him and him alone. Look, if you would, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So walk ye in him. You see that? In him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Verse number 9, for in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10, and ye are complete in him. Verse number 11, in whom. Verse number 12, buried with him, risen with him. Colossians 2.13, hath he quickened together with him. And finally, 2.15, triumphing over them in him. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we have completeness. There is wisdom in Christ. There is law in Christ. There is mystery in Christ. There is indulgence and pleasure in Christ. We are filled in him, not by him. Wisdom will never fill you up alone. Wisdom will leave you empty. Uh, Mysticism will never complete you alone. Uh, Discipline will never enlighten you. Indulgence will not satisfy you. Why? Why is that the case? And this is the illustration, and I I wrestle with these illustrations because I I want them to to do the point that I, I want them to accomplish the point that I intend. This cup right here, I don't know if you can see from where you're sitting, but this cup, I found it lost and found, so if you were looking for it, it's no good now. Um, I've drilled a bunch of holes in it. It doesn't hold water. It's empty. You see, the problem with wisdom alone is you come to philosophy and you think philosophy is going to fill you. You can't hold on to philosophy in the first place, and there's not enough philosophy in this world to fill you, because it's limited by the here and now. You come to mysticism, and you look for mysticism to fill you and to be your solution, and you're going to chase all of the extra things from this world and think that that's where the answer lies, and you'll be enlightened. The fact is, it's too limited by the present. It comes up short. 
And you could go to pleasure. And I think of Solomon. Solomon was the most wealthy man that ever lived most likely when you consider the amount of money he had coming in on a yearly time. And he said, nothing that I desired did I withhold from myself. He said, I consumed anything I wanted. And he said, you know what I found out? I was still empty. It was vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And an emptiness arose. And you said, well, no, I know the answer is, Pastor. It's asceticism. We need to be disciplined. Discipline's the answer. And so we pour discipline into our life. And the fact is, you and I both have made the New Year's resolutions. We've gone on the diets, and we make it to Monday. And asceticism doesn't work. I'm not saying that discipline and wisdom and indulgence and pleasure and mysticism should be thrown out. What I'm saying is that the man's wisdom, man's philosophy, man's indulgences are limited and they cannot satisfy us. He said, well, I know what we need. We need to get a little bit of religion. And so we come to church and we get a little bit of Jesus and we pour it in and like, I'll be good. I'm going to go on my way. And we don't get two weeks away from church and we're like, man, I'm empty again. I thought Jesus worked. And, and here's what I want you to see. We're leaky vessels because we're broken by sin. We are empty and broken because of our sin nature. So how are you going to take a broken cup like this and be full? How do you fill something that is broken like this? You say, well, pastor, I know what you do. Plug the holes. Well, I got news for you. In the resurrection, you're going to be made new. There'll be no sin nature in the resurrection. In the resurrection, I don't comprehend what that's going to be like, but I'll be able to pray without a sin nature. I'll be able to praise without a sin nature. I'll be able to love without that. And there will be a completeness then that I don't understand now. But you remember, we live right now with still a broken body, with a sin nature that abides in us. How then, if you can't plug the holes, how are we ever going to get the cup full? And remember, we're not filled by Christ. We're filled in Christ. And when the cup is in Christ, it's full. And only in him are we full. This is the reality. That's the only way you and I find fullness today. You're not going to find fullness from indulgence. You're not going to find fullness from asceticism. You're not going to find it from mystery. You're not going to find it from man's philosophy. But when you are in Christ, that's where you find fullness. And only in him alone. You say, well, pastor, I don't always feel full. And again, I told you, I don't care what you say. That's not where we start. The issue is not necessarily how you feel about it. The issue is what we know to be true according to the word of God. That I am seated in heavenly places. I am complete in him. You say, well, pastor, how do I get an awareness of that fullness? And I think that comes by us walking in the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. And I want you to see how that connects, and we'll go home. Look, if you would, Ephesians chapter number 5. By faith, I have accepted Christ as my Savior. And the Bible says the day that I accepted Christ as my Savior, I was placed into Christ. And the term we're going to use next week, he said that we were cut off in Christ, that's circumcision, and we were baptized into Christ. And by the way, that's the only thing you can do with a dead body is bury it you got to bury a dead body. We were buried with Christ. And we're anticipating one day that I'll be raised with Christ. 
right? That's coming. So I was placed in him by faith at salvation. But in chapter 5 and verse number 18, look what he tells us here. And I got to turn over there real quick. I didn't get there quick enough. He said, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And the term here literally is to be being filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Verse number 25, husbands, love your wives. Now, I read all of that so you can see a similarity here, okay? He says, be filled with the Spirit. I believe when we are filled with the Spirit, we are reminded of and aware of what Christ has done, that we've been placed in Him. And what is the parallel? Look, if you would, in Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16. Listen to this word. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to your God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. You see the parallel? That Ephesians said, be filled with the Spirit, and here's what it looks like. Now he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and this is what it looks like. It looks the same. And I think this morning when we talk about being filled with the Spirit of God, it's about being filled with the Word of God. When my heart and mind is being filled with the Word of God, I am mindful of what Christ has done in me and what he's done through me and how that he's placed me in Christ. When I open the Word of God, and, and John 15 tells us this, abide in me and my words abide in you. You'll ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. And this is what it means to be placed in Christ. This morning, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are complete in him. Now, one day there's going to be a resurrection. And when that resurrection comes, the cup will be resurrected. But there's going to be a day, too, where Christ is all in all. That the air we breathe will be the glory of God. We will stand in his presence for eternity. The new heaven and new earth will be complete in Christ, and we will be complete in him. So I challenge you this morning, set your mind on these things. We are complete, not by him. We are complete in him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to take what has been said this morning. I pray that you would do the work of driving it to our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would take a simple illustration like this and help it to cement the concept in our hearts and minds. And Father, we could apply it to our lives as we go this week. Father, as we meditate on your word today, may we be reminded of what you've done for us, done in us, and are doing through us. And we'll praise you for your mercy and your grace. It's in Jesus' precious name. Let's stand to our feet and we'll sing.